Hello and welcome to the Chaos to Clarity podcast, where we hear from incredibly successful and inspirational technology executives and thought leaders about escaping the chaos of building a tech startup and the hard-won lessons of getting to scale. I'm Eric Weiss, a 20-year software industry veteran, an executive coach, and the CEO of the Chaos to Clarity Accelerator. In this show, you will hear about the journey that founders must take to build a successful technology company, but I'll also share my own experience and methods as a leader, a founder, and an executive coach. Let's jump right into it. All right, I am here with Elon Reshef, co-founder and chief product officer at Gong. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to meet you. Likewise. No, this is going to be fun. We, you know, Gong is a platform to allow companies to record and analyze their sales conversations um, to increase conversion and and uh, increase insight across the entire company. As a product leader myself, I've used your your platform with many of my teams to try to get that that really juicy feedback and insight directly from the horse's mouth, so that when sales teams come and they ask for product features and so on, we actually know what we're what they're talking about. So I'm going to talk. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about that. Um, but before we get into it, I'd love to just hear about your background and really what led you to found this company. Cool, sure, happy to share. So I've been, uh, I've had my first startup company back here. It was more years ago than I'd like to admit. Just say it was <laughs> in the beginning of the uh, um, century, and then I sold it uh, about ten years ago. Went to the sabbatical, which I recommend to everybody. Yes. And then I was going through a sabbatical. I was going to think about something new, and then I meet my co- my met my co-founder Amit who kind of stumbled across an issue. He had he ran a company called Sysense, which is a BI company. And he stumbled upon this issue, which is running a revenue organizations, all or most of the knowledge that you have about what's going on um, stays in people's heads. <laughs> so sellers kind of talk with customers all day, video, phone, email, whatever. But then when you ask the question, why is somebody performing better? Is the deal going to close? What's the market sentiment, et cetera? you have to sort of start interviewing people, which is kind of crazy in, in, in today's world. So um, I was, again, doing sabbatical, doing some kind of playing with AI a little bit. So we kind of got together and figured, let's try to automate this, capture all of the conversations that are happening and rethink what is revenue management and what is like the day-to-day selling look like in a world where there's a software system that understands everything that's going on and can start guide and, and, and automate some of those kind of tedious processes. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, again, kind of from a from a product background, um, you know, I run product operations teams, and I'm always evangelizing customer interviews and and customer engagement as much as possible through usability testing and so on and so forth. And so I was really happy when tools started coming out around video recordings and and, and analytics around customer interviews, things like Dovetail, things like Lookback, and so we we would get to this point where yeah, we'd have these really great insights and things coming from these sort of downstream product interviews. And then companies would say, well, like, what about our other touch points, right? What about sales? What about customer success? And so I started looking, and this was actually several years ago. I mean, obviously your your product was still around, but I think it was kind of hot off the presses at that time. And I said, well, well, there it is. And once we started implementing it into these teams, there was a huge like culture shift that happened because sales and product have this sometimes tense relationship where there is a there's a telephone game that tends to be happening 
where, you know, sales is saying, we really need this. Our customers are saying, we really need this. And product is saying, well, you know, but we, we also, we have our roadmap, right? We have our strategy. We have the things that we've all agreed we were going to do. How are we going to make these compromises based on some sales conversation that you're having? But by getting not only, you know, sort of one call, but sort of interview after interview, conversation after conversation, and hearing it directly from the customer, we can start to see how important these, you know, these needs are. And so when sales and product come together around the shared understanding of the customer pain point, it's just been, well, it's just been an incredible collaboration. And a lot of the, the, the tension really has dissipated. So what, what I guess have you seen from, from your perspective about how sales teams have been able to drive product more effectively using this tool? Yeah, it's a great point because um, Gong at Gong we sell mostly to revenue leaders, and the problems that we sell, we market against, are you know going to increase sales performance, more effectiveness, and so on. One of the hidden secrets is yes, it also helps with products because you know, eventually <laughs> sellers can be as good as they can, but eventually if the product doesn't doesn't cut it, there's no seller in the world that can win a deal that is just the product doesn't make any sense, right? So, um, as you said, it, what I've known is also as a product leader for many years is. Um, you know, sellers come to me and say, well, a customer is asking about, you know, technology X, Y, and Z, and I'm like scratching my head. And I don't even think there is technology X, Y, and Z because that's what the sellers heard. And no offense to them, they're not supposed to be the technology experts. So you go kind of set up a meeting with a customer two weeks later. By that time, you know, the, the world goes upside down and everybody's like hectic. And then with Gong, it's obviously automated because the person can tag me or tag the right PM and, and we can then search and see all of the places where people look to this. And what surprised me initially was after... Because I came to it from a product lens as you are, but then I kind of spoke with many sellers and it turns out that this telephone game you mentioned is sort of works against them in the same way because they don't want to be in a situation where they're like calling a product manager and trying to mirror what the customer had said and knowing that they're not going to do it successfully because, you know, we're not asking them to be the product expert. And now uh-huh. all you have to do is like basically tag people or send them a snippet or send them a summary and it's from the horse directly from the horse's mouth. So it's transformative to product organizations. But to be honest at Gong, we're undoing, we're not doing like a great job in marketing this or selling this because again, the core buyer is still a revenue persona. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of came at it from a from a different angle than obviously your your uh, ICP. But, you know, I guess so well, let's go, let's let's take the the story. Uh, the way you portray it, because again, I'm maybe coming from a from a different angle. So tell me about what are some of the challenges that sales teams are struggling with that, that you guys can help them? Um, there are multiple challenges. Um, it starts from the fact that you simply don't have a visibility into, into what's going on. So it affects you on how do you kind of coach, train, and onboard people, because you have uh-huh. no idea. So what people have been doing before Gong is something called shadowing, which is like sales, the new salesperson to be on the same calls that the veteran salesperson is at, which is a huge sales of time because the, the all hour might not even be beneficial. That's so by right. the fact that the system kind of captures all of the information and curate the right um, um, conversations or deals to sort of uh, be trained on is, is a game changer. And then it's sort of go to the day-to-day. It's when the system um, uh, can find out what's going on in the account and they start recommending next actions, it takes away from the seller's like main um, uh, task time. And there is statistics in the, uh, I think Gartner says that 77% of the seller's time is spent not selling, which is a cra- crazy stat. You know, if right. I was, if my product managers were not doing product managers for, for 77% of their time, <laughs> I would be, I would freak out. And it's partially because they're being asked to do all sorts of things, you know, account handoffs and account handovers and, and CRM updates and all of that uh, tasks and system can op- automate that. 
And then finally, the whole deal management aspect is basically broken because what happened before Gong is you go over a list of accounts and then the manager is asking the rep, so what about this deal? And they spend five, 10 minutes to just review the deal. And all of the information is in, right now it's in Gong, right? It could be in a computer mm-hmm. system. And when the system knows it and says, hey, focus on account number three, and you don't have to do the fact finding, you focus on strategy. So you um, very quickly get to increase win rates, shorter sales cycle, essentially higher effectiveness of the whole organization. So this is kind of the platform that we've built and, and kind of driving the, the different applications across the different um, uh, areas of selling or the different phases of selling. So it's able to analyze the, the transcript essentially and pick out, okay, these are the objections or these are the essential bits, um, and then able to present that in clips and alerts and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Wow. And, and it's calls and emails, right? Think about an account where somebody's like a buyer sends an email saying, hey, sorry, we're not going to be able to move ahead in the next two months. Um, the system automatically captures this. It says, this is a red flag. A, stop forecasting this account. Be escalated because there might be some savings to do and, and, you know, course correct it if you can. Otherwise, just take it off your forecast. And otherwise, you'd rely on the rep who might not pay attention to the email, who might have happy ears and might just uh, yes, you know, kind of um, hope that it, it, it fixes itself. So conversations like calls, emails, all of the communication mechanisms. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah. So again, I, I, I only looked at it from the lens of, hey, we get video. We get to sit in on the, you know, we get to virtually shadow these these conversations. Um, but there's so much more that you can actually pull out of that. That's really cool. What what kind of teams or what size or stage of company um, does this really help the most? We have customers, funny, we have customers ranging from literally people with hiring the first salesperson. Um, and in that case, the use case is typically the CEO slash founder wants to understand how that person is performing, what does the market say without being on every single call. So that's a relatively easy use case. It's not a data-driven approach. It's more like, could you please feed me with the critical moments of that seller? So I know that if they don't sell, is it the seller or is it the product? Did I find product market fit? So there's a bunch of companies who are sub even 50 people all the way up to companies that are Fortune 50 with um, you know more than 10,000 sellers. In that case, usually the uh, the problems they're facing is how do I create consistency across all of the organization? How do I monitor that all of the new plays I'm, I'm actually putting out are actually being adopted? Are selling saying the right things? Are they selling the right products? Because otherwise, you're basically only relying on what they call lagging indicators, which is have they sold the product or not? But it's hard to tell ahead of time are people using the new messaging or or even offering the right uh, product. So we really kind of offer end to end. So and then are you able to see kind of like you know like able to tell what works? Like hey, if this if this conversation resulted in a sale, let's go back and see maybe what what may have led to that. Yeah, so there's a bunch of things around like uh, what we call win-loss analysis. There's two ways to do it. What are the sellers, the top sellers are doing different than the bottom uh-huh. sellers, which is at a seller level. And then at the deal level, we have sort of uh, something we call win-loss analysis, which basically says let's, let's kind of, I don't know, let's assume that, I don't know, offering three-year deals is good or bad. You can actually see the impact and see how it uh, increases or does not increase uh, your win rates. So uh, based on oh, real wow. data. That's fantastic. That's amazing. And then all of that is AI-driven, I, I suppose. Yeah, it's AI-driven. And what we started was seven years ago, or um, a little bit more than seven years ago, it was still, we at the time we had used like off-the-shelf transcription, and over time we moved to use our own transcription. And and uh-huh. up until a couple of years ago, our AI was a natural language understanding, was still, you know, um, we, we stuff was based on keywords. Now, based on all of the large language model technologies, we can uh-huh. actually identify concepts. So you don't have to punch yeah, in a yeah. word that says discount. You can tell the system, Find me all of the cases where somebody's offering discount, even if they don't use the word discount, even if they say, do you care about the price or can I do anything to help you out with the price? These sort of things. 
and you don't huh. have to figure out one of the wording combinations. So it's really yeah. powerful if you want to nail down accurately, is, is a trend going up, is a trend going down, or you want to focus on truly meaningful conversations that you care about. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? So like kind of in the old world, you write a sales script and you stick to the script and you test whether or not a script is is effective based on the close rate. But so much of selling is really conversations and relationship building. And obviously, I think, you know, by going off script, you you may not be able to measure as well the effectiveness, but you're making it more natural and you're and you're enabling them to to make real connection. So that's really cool that you're enab- you're allowing the best of both worlds that you can be natural, you can have conversations, you can build real connection, but then also be able to test and iterate and improve upon your strategy. Yeah, human beings are are, are strange like species, right? So we don't like to follow instructions verbatim. So even if you tell people, ask this, unless you're in a call center and you're forced by law to say a specific set of words, even then they kind of miss a few. Um, but in normal, especially business to business selling, which is most where most of our customers are, you want people to kind of feel the atmosphere and, and kind of say it in their own language. Otherwise they come across as bots versus human beings. So you're almost hardly going to ever kind of uh, hear words in, in, in the way they were written in some Word document somewhere or Google Sheet. Yeah. Or uh, it's really interesting. You know, and there's so much around the psychology of it and, you know, using specific wording, specific language, uh, and how that can have an impact on people. And obviously certain people have an intuition for that, right? And they end up becoming the top, you know, the top sellers. Um, but now you allow that to be learned or at least analyzed uh, so people can draw from that. That's really cool. So you've been, obviously you guys have been in business for, for quite a while now. You've, you've grown pretty big. What were some of the, the, the biggest growth challenges that you had? Growth challenges. So we, we have been sort of one of the fastest growing SaaS companies. So we kind of were lucky maybe to sort of come up with a product at the right time when kind of AIs uh-huh. kind of went up and obviously video conferencing has kind of gone up in, 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 in demand or in usage. So I don't think we kind of struggled against the specific product market fit issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think obviously these days when the markets are um, not as fun as they used to be maybe a couple of years ago, um, we do see market segments that are being hurt. And I'll give you an example. If we sell to a software company, maybe um, they bought 100 licenses and maybe they only had 80 people anticipating 100 mm-hmm. and now they're left with 65. I mean, obviously it is, I mean, in the next renewal, we're going to renew with the number of sellers they actually have. So <laughs> as, a, as a company that sells like user-based licenses, we and, and we are obviously dependent on, on actually people being in, in, in seat and that's <laughs> which is something we have to manage, especially in the technology sector, which is being affected yeah. maybe more than others. So so you you were able to hit product market fit kind of from the first pass. Um, what what do you think contributed to that or what was your, your approach to defining product market fit early on? Yeah, obviously there's no magic around it. There's always like, you know, it's, it's a little bit of luck and a little bit of, I think the contributing factors were my partner Amit was kind of a user, right? He had a pain in his company. So we knew at least uh-huh. one company had a pain. So yeah. quickly we find a few more. So we knew that there's a bunch of companies that have this, this pain. We didn't know how much. And what we decided to do early on was really like hyper-focus. And I think that maybe I didn't do well in my first company. And what we said, we're only going to sell initially to software companies based in the US selling in English uh-huh. or video conference selling business to business software that was the sort of the the value of which is somewhere between a thousand and a hundred thousand dollars. So that was initially there's probably ten thousand companies like that in the whole okay. world. 
Yeah. And obviously that's not a great time and you can just like be a multi-billion dollar company just based on that market. Um, but that enables us very quickly to sort of like um, create a spiral effect of Definitely. people know people who move between companies and, and, and grow fast. So I think that's, it's not finding the product market fit, but it's kind of amplifying this a little bit. I think a contributing factor to finding it is also understanding what are the trends. Uh-huh. When I started the company, I didn't want to like spend seven years in, or now we're already at this maybe eight, but just doing something that it doesn't have product market fit. So what I always ask myself is, why now? I think that's one of the maybe overlooked question. Uh-huh. And I think what we saw at the time was um, people are moving more and more to video conferencing. That was pre-COVID, mind you. So we still saw uh-huh. the path. Um, people are selling more remotely in general because of technology or because obviously for software, you don't install it anymore. And then AI was getting better. So um, uh-huh. I had bought NVIDIA stock at the time because I knew where this was heading. <laughs> um, but we didn't know that there's going to be like chat GPT and other like specifics, but we knew this prescription is going to get better. AI is going to get better. Natural language understanding is going to be better. And all of these are contributing factors to sort of people seeing, hey, there's more value because I can get more accurate transcript. I can get more accurate insights. I can get more accurate uh-huh. action items, better summaries, which we're not, we weren't able to do maybe six or seven years ago. Yeah. So to, so to kind of sum it up, you, you, you had experience with the pain, right? This wasn't something foreign to you or some other market you were selling into. You were sort of eating your own dog from, from day one. You got hyper-focused on the persona and you assessed market trends and, and basically capitalized on new technologies that were exactly. coming to play. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So kind of starting on, on the first one around eating your own dog food. This comes up a lot. There's there's sort of two failure patterns that a lot of startup founders fall into. One is they have what I call the outsider syndrome, where they see other people experiencing a pain and they sort of falsely believe that they understand it and they try to build a solution for somebody else's problem without really immersing themselves in it. And the other failure pattern is they're the only ones experiencing it and they think or they are experiencing it and they think everybody else is experiencing it in the same way. <laughs> so by doing by doing the research and the discovery and, and really engaging with customers, we're able to find that, um, no, it's actually, you know, everybody has their own experience and we want to empathize with our customers, but we also need to understand that not everyone experiences things in the same way. Um, so that was, that was cool that you were able to, to hit that early on. Yeah. I don't think it's trivial. I think, um, yeah, hyper hyper focusing on yourself as a user or a buyer, I think that's as you said, it's a it's a pitfall. I, you know, I keep telling people, don't think of us as we're not the typical users of Gong. By the way, we obviously everybody lives on Gong and Gong. Not every one of our customers uses this in the same way. So you always have to keep the real customer in mind, and then um, and then as you said, but you still have to be very immersed in the domain. So it's really helpful when you understand it. If very, it's much harder to develop. I don't know healthcare devices if you've kind of uh-huh. never been a physician or never kind of dealt with healthcare devices. You can just takes longer and your intuition might not kind of work out well for you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then the second one around hyper-focusing the persona, um, obviously a lot of founders want to build a really big business and they say, well, we have to be everything to everybody. We have to, you know, eat the world, become a unicorn. Um, but that's not where you start, right? The unicorns become that way through successive, through multiple successes in broadening their, their market segment. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, really, really struggle to say, no, this is, this is the starting point. This is the first bowling pin that we're going to knock down. Was that, was there ever a, a, a challenge that you had where you struggled with say, are we making this thing too small or, or not? Did you always see the potential long-term? 
Yeah, I think uh, luckily for me, I had made all of those mistakes in my previous company. So yeah. I read, I mean, you kind of referenced the boning pill. And so I've read Jeffrey Moore's book and basically uh-huh. I said, nah, the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to be smart <laughs> than this, this person. So we kind of went way too, too, too wide. And of course, two years later, we kind of narrowed down to the first use case. And so I think starting on both Amit and I, we're like, we're going to fo- hyper-focus and expand. And even like our, one of our first enterprise customers was calling us and was like, can you please help me? And Amit, my, you know, my, my partner again was telling him, hey, we, what, what do you use for, for kind of this, uh, conversations? And they're like, we use this phone system. And Amit was like, yeah, I know you're an enterprise customers, but we don't support phone systems other than, than video calls. That's a phone And we're going to come back with to you in, in six to nine months. And we did. And they actually appreciate it because they kind of wow. assess that we were like serious about like prioritizing and what we do. Because if we had tried to be everything to everybody, I don't think we would have been successful making our first customers successful, what we call raving fans, essentially very successful, which is what enables the next stage, which is the ability to go to other types of customers. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. So, I mean, that's, that's it, right? The shiny object syndrome, right? Chasing the rabbits into every different bush. Most startup founders have this incredible fear of letting a deal go because they're trying to capture on every opportunity because every dollar matters. But if it doesn't align with your strategy, then you're going to become mud, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah, as a small company, there's no way to succeed doing multiple things. I mean, we're like, I don't know, maybe 15 people at a time and it, like there's so much engineering power you can put and even marketing power and even like sales power. So if you start to sell yeah. multiple use cases, let alone implement it, there's no way for you to be hyper successful. Yeah, right. And that, you're right. It has all these ripple effects. So if, you're, if your persona is too broad or too fuzzy um, around the product, it, it, you know, the use cases aren't really clearly defined. The messaging isn't really clearly defined. And when everything becomes fuzzy and becomes muddy, you lack clarity, you lack, you know, that impact. And then basically you're, you're, you try to be all things to all people. You end up being nothing to nobody. <laughs> Yeah. And the big pitfall, I've heard it from somebody many, many years ago, is this kind of sentence, I don't know if it's true or not, but basically saying founders can sell anything. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't think every founder can sell everything, but in the end of the day, there's the tricky part, which you come with a lot of enthusiasm and domain knowledge and, you know, kind of some, some kind of weight behind you and you end up selling stuff. But if you don't, if it's not consistent, if not all of your customers buy into the same pain, there's no way you can replicate it to multiple sellers so if yeah. you fool yourself if like i sold those five deals they're all the same that might be far from the truth because you need the sellers to have a much kind of tighter definition of icp value propositions yeah. so capabilities kpis measurements rois whatever <laughs> the tools are yeah and you know I, i'm not a sales coach but you know i work with with startups that obviously are, are sales focused and one of the things so from again from a product leader perspective my kpi is around retention and so I would work with, I work with a lot of companies where you might have a sales team that is incredible at conversion and they think we're doing a great job, but their churn is out of this world because they're bringing in people that aren't the right customer, right? Where the product isn't really suited to them. Um, and in fact, I, I work with a lot of in, investors as well. And, you know, VCs care obviously about revenue and they care about growth, but they care about retention as much, if not more. And so I've had companies that have that have been growing like crazy, but their retention was, you know, probably like double where it should be. And they've said no. They said, we're not going to invest in your next round because you've got this incredibly leaky bucket. You're just going to be burning half of my money. Right. I think that's what I was saying is like the relationship between sales and product is they need their interest to be aligned around retention, right? That long-term revenue growth, which really means 
are we actually serving the right customer and are we really delivering on that promise that your sales team is so incredible at at selling? Yeah. Actually, had a, when we started the Gong, I had a conversation. I can actually attribute it to Mark Roberge, who used to be the CRO at HubSpot. Yeah. And he said one of their kind of reasons for success is they're like adamant about their customer success. Not, uh-huh. like, not a function of customer success, but uh, making their customer success. And I think that later on, they kind of re try to reward the idea of a sales funnel into, into a flywheel, which basically yeah. says you don't sell a customer and deliver. It's a flywheel if you don't make them successful. Even that yeah. customer is not going to renew, let alone kind of refer other customers. So Correct. we totally bought into the idea. We call it like we have operating principles at Gong. And the first one is we call it raving fans, which is basically uh-huh. making sure that our customers appreciate the value of Gong. Otherwise, ideally, we don't sell to them. If we had sold by mistake, you know, we do our best to make them raving fans or we part ways as friends. But yeah. that's not our goal just to sell. I mean, there's no, especially in the SaaS world, it just doesn't make any business sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in my in my executive coaching, I have a, a a model for scale. I'm a guitarist. I'm a heavy metal guy from back wow. in the day. So I say, you know, if you want to create a great company, if you want to be Metallica, right? If you want to be an absolute right showstopper, first you got to have incredible talent, right? You need great musicians, but then you need a flawless performance, right? They all need to be playing the same song and the same tune, the same key. And you need to give the customers what they want to create raving fans and the raving fan, then it actually, it creates that flywheel, right? So the raving fans, you know, then that creates that additional growth. You create this extraordinary customer experience. Then you're able to attract better talent and more talent. And then, and then again, it creates this flywheel for, for scale. Uh, so yeah, I, I love using that same term as well. I use music analogies wherever possible. So I'm just like, who are raving fans? Okay, <laughs> let's make them super happy and then let's find more of them. And, you know, anyway. So, so okay. So the, the third part uh, of, of the strategy that you were talking about around product market fit is identifying and, and leveraging market trends in, in technology amongst other things. Obviously, there is a tidal wave happening in the market right now uh, around AI. And, you know, being in, in being in this world, you know, I've been through a few cycles just like you. I've seen these waves come and go, right? And I've all too often, in fact, actually, I, so back in 2016, um, I worked at a company and we built a startup. This was when chatbots and kind of the early open language models were just coming about. Uh, you know, Alexa was, was just released, Amazon Alexa and Actually, sorry for the listeners out there whose Alexa just woke up because (laughs) I said that. Um, But, you know, this was one of these things where VCs were hungry. They were were rabid about these new technology trends and everybody was was, and their mother was building a chatbot. And so then all these startups came and failed because they didn't actually solve a problem better than the solutions that were already out there right? Which were just websites and apps and things like that. And so the chatbot sort of diminished and there's still a bit of it left. And obviously ChatGPT is now its own new thing. But how did you kind of early on identify these new technologies and, and how did you assess which ones were actually not only built to last, but which ones would truly make the customer experience better? That's a great question. I don't think there's a formula for, uh, you know, kind of technology assessment. I think it stems from the point that you've raised as well, which is, you know, does it provide customer value? You know, does it, does it, is it hip or are my investors going to like it or yeah. are my kind of peers going to like it? So I think conversational AI is actually it's got more chance now with, with kind of technology becoming way better. But at the time, certainly, you know, I would, I, I don't think consumers want to shop with like, you know, 
what color, what color, what shirt colors do you have? It's like green, blue, or red. Well, freaking show me the shirts, right? I can just buy you over a <laughs> yeah. chatbot, right? Or, you know, when, right. when is the flight leave tomorrow? It's like, well, I got five times. Could you please show it to me in a GUI where I can click, right? So I think that was an example of technology that was overhyped. And, you know, obviously Amazon is gonna sh- and, and Google are kind of shutting down a lot of that business. I think the the core understanding of like the the AI model sort of it it starts from you know deep neural networks which kind of did a revolution. I mean you can just look at the numbers. You know where images were identified like eighty percent and it became ninety ninety five ninety eight whatever. And then at the end natural language understanding there's again sort of like architecture that's kind of transformer based. It's you just like see the results. It's like you could barely do stuff that now is like uh, done at a superhuman level. So I think first of all you need to understand you know are the technologies real in the sense of like how accurate they are. What kind of results are they given? And, you know, those two technologies have transformed the accuracy levels, which quantitative becomes qualitative at some stage. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, what do you do with it, right? Is, you know, is, is conversation in AI the big thing? You know, maybe I think the jury is still out, but certainly if you can take a 10-page document and come up with like, here's here's the summary, this stuff that things can be done today. And if you think uh-huh. about the deal, for example, it's got 15 conversations, maybe calls like 10 emails or 50 emails. And then if you can just give an executive, here is the five bullet points you should care about when you walk into this account and do it in 30 seconds. That's obviously a need. There's obviously a pain. And now the next step is, you know, can the technology actually solve it reasonably well? Because if it doesn't, then you're basically uh, short-lived. But if it can, then, you know, it's it's obviously a, a big a big thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, accuracy around these. So, so an over-reliance uh, or an over-hype around these technologies creates a lot of really weird <laughs> situations that keep popping up. Um, one of the things that I just saw last week was um, somebody created this AI to measure uh, or to detect skin cancers, right, in photographs. And they had this weird anomaly that um, any picture that had a, a ruler in it or some sort of graded lines would would hit positive for it. And it and it turns out, well, because of the training set of tumors, they usually put a ruler up next to the to the to the mole. Um, and so anything that had any sort of structured lines in the image anywhere, they'd say, oh, that person has skin cancer. So, you know, false positives, false negatives, et cetera. Obviously, we know about AI hallucinations and things happening in chat GPT. So how have you controlled for that in in Gong? So what we usually try to do is that the nice thing about chat GPT specifically is that it's very fast to do stuff, right? You ask it a question, could you please tell me what the subject of this conversation is? It's going to give you some answer. Maybe it's the right one, maybe it's the wrong one, but so it's very easy to prototype with. It takes it doesn't take an engineer. My son literally has this like Fiverr gig where he sells stuff and then you get a Fiverr gig of connecting, what is it, like a computer game, Minecraft, you know, the kids game with ChatGPT and create like an automated bot. So it's very easy to kind of um, start. It's very easy to create something. It's very hard to create something accurate. So luckily for us, we have um, a really kind of large and, you know, kind of very talented data science team. So what we do is once we find out that the use case is there, customers need something. I'll give you an example. Action items, right? So ChatGPT can give you like reasonable action items for a conversation, but not great ones. Then we can go back and train a homegrown model. It's basically using the same set of technologies that people call them whatever, large language models, GPT, whatever, like all sorts of names. But these are like trains on, trained on real revenue data we have across our customers. And then we can get to much, much higher accuracy, no hallucinations, no out of domain, no like inventions. And then we can kind of bring up a much, much higher quality product market. It's even more important if you give to a human, like here's like action items that are going to figure it out. But if you want to do any type of insights or analytics on top of it, then if you didn't get it right, you're going to be completely uh, kind of building on, you know, garbage in, garbage out stuff. So it's super important, especially as you sort of kind of aggregate it, the data has to be accurate. So, so looking at these sort of open or 
I don't want to call them general AIs because it's not what they are, but uh, these these generic AIs like ChatGPT as a way to prototype, but to really get it right, you need to train your own models. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on the accuracy. Some stuff you can get right even with OpenAI. Like compose an email for me that is an email to a customer that tells them, you know, I'm sorry, I missed the call and, you know, I want to meet next week. That and they open, like OpenAI can do this very, very well. Um, but actually fine tuning to your specific domain or understanding your specific context is not something that can be done these days. I mean, maybe these AI generic off the shelf AI tools will provide a better way to sort of contextualize or domainize their, their technology. But right now it's pretty far off. So that's like you tell, like, here's a sentence people might say, I want to spend a weekend with my family and you ask open AI. So what is this person's goal? So make well, the goal is to uh, spend a weekend with a family. Yeah, no, dude, this is not <laughs> the goal. This is just like a statement of like crapping up a call or whatnot. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. Um, so then are you able to, do you actually, so you leverage the conversations themselves and then use that to retrain the AI and, and predict outcomes and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like there's tons of stuff you can do all the way from assisting the person. It's like, oh, by the way, here's a message that you got from a client, just reply this way, or here's okay. how you should follow up to this conversation, or, um, you know, here's an objection, and, you know, five of those objections came up, and, you know, kind of yeah. deal with it as a company, or as a seller, or as a manager, or whatnot. So. Wow. Now, does it give any sort of real-time feedback? If anybody's on the call, does it say, hey, I'm seeing this go this direction, or why don't you try talking about this? Yeah, so we, we do have like a Zoom app that you can kind of have during a video conference call. We've kind of tried to not overdo this like real-time stuff because people uh -huh. need to be concentrated in, in the mm -hmm. call. Like our conversation right now, if I had a bot that tells me, you know, this is, I'd be uh -huh. completely distracted. So some things uh -huh. are kind of more natural for real-time. A good example would be you're talking too much, right? That's like, you know, boom, 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 just stop. <laughs> but if you try to sort of provide oh, somebody man. with a nuanced answer, it's like, you know what, this is, I can't like read and talk at the same time. So uh, we haven't found this useful. Maybe, you know, one day, um, maybe it's 100%. If we get to 100% reliability and uh, like a very succinct recommendation, maybe AI is going to figure it out. But I don't think we're there yet as, as like a... I mean, honestly, just as a standalone product, just telling me when I'm talking too much in a Zoom call, I think would actually, I would pay for that. <laughs> Look, in, in, I think it was a few a few years ago in April's Fools, we announced that we are going to, April's Fool, we announced we're going to have gone for dating for the same reasons. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? So as a, as a, as an executive coach, as a leadership coach, the loud voices in the room and being over opinionated and, and squashing other people's ideas is, is actually a really, really hard thing to train or thing to coach uh, an executive or a founder. And in fact, the way I coach around it is I have them find a trusted buddy, if you will, to give them a nudge, right? To give them a little hand signal or to give them a private message to say, hey, you're, you're rambling or you're really taking up the air in the room. It, it, it is something that is, it, it's hard to learn intrinsically. So having something to monitor and remind you, to be honest, is, is pretty compelling. <laughs> yeah, the nice thing about software, it's even more fun than colleagues because <laughs> one of the things you typically see is like, uh, you know, the conversations ended. Basically, the AI is going to tell the person, you know, you spoke 70% of the time. They're going to be like, no, there's no way I've spoken 70% of the time. And you go back, it's like, yes, it's 70. It's like, no, that was just one call. And now the system tells you, well, guess what? In nine out of the last 10 calls, you spoke more than 60. So there's so much you can argue with facts and with data that at some point uh, you're going to just... What we're seeing is in, in our system, people actually self-correct. So you almost uh, see like, I don't think we've done the stats in the last couple of years, but we've done it a few years ago and you see like people coming into the system, their average stock ratio is like about 66% and after a year it's like 58 or whatever the number is um, because wow. they don't want to 
they don't want to, they get like a yellow mark and they don't want to uh -huh. be yellow. Everybody wants to be green. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So maybe we should try um, it with executives too. Who knows, right? Yeah. So I actually, I do a lot of, uh, so with, with customer interviews anyway, especially, I do a lot of work with product teams and, and coach them on, on how to do better product interviews. And that is one of the things that comes up a lot is, is active listening, or I call it even extreme listening. Um, and so there's a, a number of things that I do, but one of which is like, you got to put a dollar in the swear jar every time you talk about your product. Um, we do look at, yeah, how often they're talking versus, versus asking, or how many times they're making assertions or statements versus asking questions. And so we'll go in and, and we'll kind of like have them do one and then we'll do one. We'll do a, another interview. We will get customers to just completely open up and want to buy and want to you know partner with us, et cetera, just by asking them about their problems. Like it's, it's, it's really that easy because A, we, you think about how often does anyone really ask you, <laughs> how are you feeling? Like, what's your, pro tell me about your problem. What are you struggling with? Most people never get that. You know, and so when somebody comes in and genuinely just wants to to listen to you, man, people people really open up. And then once they've done that, it's almost like therapy. Okay, now they have a connection with you. Okay, now let's buy. Let's talk about buying. Let's talk about working together. Yeah, 100%. So that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I remember kind of having state of everything gong where I spoke like twenty three percent of the time. Uh -huh. and the customer was like, "I gotta hear about the roadmap," and I'm like, "Yeah, first of all, I want to ask you a quick question." It was pretty much like the whole conversation was a bunch of questions. And then I got the uh -huh. feedback from the sales people. It's like, oh, we really like the roadmap. Well, I didn't even speak about the roadmap, right? Just a good conversation. <laughs> what he's saying is he really likes you. And whatever you say, he's ready. So Just lots of, as he said, it's like, a, I mean, it, was a, it wasn't like a fictitious conversation. It was like a true <laughs> like listening conversation where obviously kind of took everything too hard, understood what I tried to solve. So it wasn't like pretending to be anything, but I think everybody mm -hmm. felt comfortable about having that honest discussion. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So you found product market fit, obviously. You've gotten big, you've scaled up. What are some of the, the challenges that you're facing today at, at this level of scale? There's always external challenges and internal challenges. Uh, external challenges is um, the, um, when we started and it was, our category was called conversation intelligence. Then we moved to do revenue intelligence. How can you tell people not just about conversations, about revenue? And over time, we're building a software that's going to automate or at least guide revenue, revenue kind of sellers uh, across all of their day-to-day -day functions, again, forecasting, pipeline management, prospecting, and a lot of these things. And just kind of getting from a single product company to a multi-product company or a platform company, however you want to call it, is always a challenge. It's like, how do you roll out new products? We have, a, we have launched last year second product that's been successful, a few hundred customers already, uh, launching a third product this year. And then it's sort of a race to who is going to be their main platform for revenue professionals to kind of carry their day-to-day -day tasks. So that's kind of external. Internally, obviously, we're about a 1,200 people organization. So we can't be as nimble as we were when we in like seven people in a room, kind of in we work and just looking behind our backs. So it's like, how do you drive change within the organization? How can you kind of obviously kind of make stuff happen across the organization, not just five sellers or seven engineers. So how do you, how have you seen yourself grow and evolve as a leader as you've, you've reached this new level of scale and where, where do you think, what kind of leader do you think you have to be now? I think it's a little bit of like, I've, I've, I did manage, you know, against previous company, I've managed, you know, kind of a few dozen people. So I, I think I have, a, I have a pretty big product organization now. It's about 70 people, which is like pretty like substantial base, uh -huh. like just a product work. Right. Uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, I've sort of managed the size of teams before. So it's always about finding the right people trusting them, trying not to interfere too much with their work. 
mm-hmm. um, try to kind of, uh, you know, sort of like help them if they get stuck in some way or form, help them facilitate stuff, not try to do the job instead. Focus more time on sort of the high level goals and, and, and sort of like cross-functional collaboration and then interfere or disrupt only when there's like a critical piece that you feel is like a hole in the organization or some things are like completely um, um, require attention. So I'll give you an example. GPT is something I've been paying more attention to um, than I would normally do to a new technology just because it's so, uh-huh. you know, um, discussed and so marketed. And you know, further, the type of technology is also disruptive. So it's important to be personally involved, you know, uh-huh. other types of uh, other areas within the product. I totally trust my leaders to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Even there, I trust my leaders. I just want to make sure I'm, you know, just not, uh, there, there's a joke saying, you know, would you, would you not follow me blindly? I'm following blindly my, my, my other leaders. I just want to make sure they're not walking blind. So just like a little bit of <laughs> watching behind their backs or whatnot. Yeah. So you've gotten to a point where you have a leadership team that you fully trust that you, you've delegated to, and now you're kind of, well, what, what is your, your, what do you see as your primary role today? Um, there's multiple elements. First of all, um, ensuring collaboration between the team and, and just like uh-huh. overseeing the whole team. So a lot of, a lot of like uh, team building and, 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 and driving collaboration and driving kind of change management. It's like, okay, we will launch a new product. How do we do this? What's the right processes? How do we kind of make decisions and these sort of things? And the other one is, is strategic alignment across the company, which is, yeah, I need uh-huh. to work with my kind of C-level counterparts, which is how do we launch new products? What are the key strategic issues versus just the, uh, day-to-day? Uh, product requirements that kind of uh-huh. come up with. Uh-huh. And then maybe so I'm how- not needed anymore, so maybe I could take another sabbatical. I kind of highly recommend the <laughs> sabbatical. So who knows? I use vacation as a litmus test for how effective your organization is. So the the executives that I work with one-on-one, they're typically later stage companies. And a lot of them will say, oh my gosh, I haven't taken a vacation in so long. And, da, da, da. and I say, well, then how do you know that your organization actually works if you never step away from it? Um, and so I have some clients that I've forced them to take a vacation and they go and they bring their laptop and they're still kind of working. Say, all right, well, things probably broke, but you were right there to fix it. Okay, next time, if something breaks, you can maybe observe, but you can't actually do it. You can't be the one affecting it. And then you've got to leave your laptop at home. And now you've got to do it every quarter. And so I have I have clients where basically one of our quarterly goals is you got to go plan a vacation and step away because... That is literally the stress test of your organization. hundred percent. I just came back from a vacation yesterday. I did not take my laptop. You know, I did have my phone so I could technically read stuff, but like I, I would not write on, a, on, a, on an iPhone. So yes. Yeah. yeah. Nothing broke, by the way. Everything was fine. Came back, much better situation than I left. So maybe I should have stayed longer. <laughs> so you got to test that limit, right? And then yeah. it won't be necessarily where are things going to break, but obviously as a strategic leader, it's do things start to kind of dissolve or, or get fuzzy, right? Yeah, or usually, you know, there's no vacuum in an organization, so people step up and usually you're just going to see who steps up to what degree and how they take on responsibility. It's something you have to sort of like, I think as a leader, you have to sort of have that mentality of just like letting go of things and just hoping somebody's going to catch them and then uh-huh. they, they grow. Otherwise, you're not going to grow right. leadership around you. Right, well, in trusting that, hey, people are, people are going to step up, people are going to rise to the occasion. Um, so, you know, obviously there's benefits to going on vacation. You get to enjoy your life. You get to recharge. You get to come back with some new uh, clarity or strategic ideas. But again, it also gives the opportunity to sort of battle test uh, your team and make sure that, you know, you've got the right people in the right seats. 100%. What's sort of in the future for you? What, what do you envision that's kind of like the future of the sales team where, you know, when when your roadmap is all built out, 
Uh, what capabilities will that enable? I think the key thing is, as I look at it, there's a pyramid at the bottom, there's like a software giving you visibility and then uh-huh. guidance and then automation. Um, uh-huh. So we started with the visibility, you know what's happening and you, you saw it as a product leader, you suddenly see what's happening. The next level is what, where we are right now, which is giving people a lot of guidance. Hey, you should do this, you should do that. And I think over time, the idea is automate stuff so that uh-huh. the 70%, 77% of time that gets wasted, uh, we kind of put more let people kind of do the stuff that they enjoy, which is selling and not the administrative mundane right. stuff. So I think it's true for many occupations, but I think for selling specifically, it's been so neglected in the last couple of decades that you can just automate the heck a lot of like the, the mundane tasks and leave people to do the thing they care about, which is thinking about what to write the emails. Maybe they're not even drafting the emails. Maybe ChatGPT is going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a conversation, I don't think that's going to get replaced. Creating the human-to-human connection, that's not going to get replaced. You know, demoing or mapping the uh, needs from the customer's needs to the stuff that they sell, all of these things. But just take away all of this stuff that could be uh, like, getting summaries. You don't need to like write them. Just, just this is AI could do this. And yeah. Nobody likes to do them anyway. Nobody's going to be like, oh shit, I don't have to write meetings out to summaries anymore. Oh, I, I like that part of my job, right? I love that. So I, 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 yeah, I see that a lot that there's so much time creating these communication artifacts that take away from having the actual human connection, right? Exactly. Oh, that's that's, exactly. that's amazing. So what, one last question for you. Obviously, you guys have you know, mined through so much data of all these different sales interactions. Are there any like common pitfalls or you know, strategies or things that, that could help uh, startup founders level up their sales? I think we touched on some of them. I think sales is uh, wrongly reviewed as a pitching game or is it a listening game? Mm-hmm. Um, it's understanding, it's contextualizing, it's mirroring what the customer said. I think if you sort of follow those steps at a high level, and then there's many like sales techniques, such as, you know, go wide, go find the right buy. I mean, there's, there's probably uh, books about it, but it's kind of finding who the decision maker is, working wide enough, creating consensus. But in the end of the day, I think if you can kind of the basic stuff, which is if you can connect with the, with the person you're selling to and understand what they need and, and double check that you have the solution for them, I think that's maybe 50% of what's taken. Uh-huh. And then, there's a lot of tactics behind the rest. Yeah. I'm um, underestimated. That's why people get uh, the big bucks for uh, being salespeople. <laughs> <laughs> Any really dumb mistakes that you see come up a lot that, you know, sort of like uh, something people Talking may not... yourself to death is probably the one thing. And what we've seen when COVID started was all of the enterprise sellers that used to be in a room and they could see people's like reaction in a room. Right. And then you move over to a video conferencing environment and suddenly people don't you can see people anymore and they would still like talk for like 15 minutes in a row. Yeah. And uh, that was a little bit embarrassing, but I think most of them got the difference now. So they kind of much more um, attuned to the media that they use. You, you can do that in a meeting because again, you see all of the faces and you see the there's a body language, but you do this over Zoom. I suspect many of those customers just went away for a break and came back and the seller never noticed. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Just sitting there pontificating. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, obviously that resonates again as a, as a product person, listen more than you speak, empathize, make a connection, uh, and build trust. And then that person is going to want to buy from you. It seems, it seems so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> it's not selling and, and doing product, like good product management work is not as different as people might think. It's uh, the connection is a lot, is, is, is very similar. So. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great talking with you. A lot of really great lessons here. Any final words or last message you want to send out to the world? No, thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Hopefully it's uh, beneficial to the audience here. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. 
If there's a challenge that you're dealing with in your tech startup that you'd like me to cover, or if you're an executive of a successful SaaS company and you'd like to be a guest on my show, or if you'd like to hear more about what I offer in the Chaos to Clarity Accelerator or my executive coaching program, reach out and connect with me at eric at fullcycleproduct.com. Thank you and I'll see you next week.